We're taking our Bibles, we're headed to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, in fact, we're going to go to a variety of passages without having the privileged opportunity of being able to use the screen. I'm going to have to have you do a lot more of the searching up the passages. So we're going to jump through multiple different passages. We're in Ephesians. Fellows, you should uh, go ahead right away. We're going to need notes right away. So feel free to come on up and give those out. Ephesians chapter 1 as we get started. Now tonight what we're doing in our study on death and dying is we're, con we're going a little bit further and we're talking about that idea, is this world our home? This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are left somewhere beyond the blue. And we sing about the idea, we're not going to live here. But is that true? Or in eternity, is there some aspect during the flood, the time of eternity, after we spiritually go to heaven, we're there for a period of time, do we ever live on this earth? And the answer is yes. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's writing and he is talking in this text. It's a praise section. And all of a sudden he gets down to verse 7. He's talking about what he's praising God for. Look at verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins according to the riches. Paul is excited and praising God because he says, I'm so thankful that I have redemption personally, that you have redeemed my soul. But the next few verses talks about the redemption of creation. Watch what he says. Wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. So what he's making several comments. He's talking about something future to his life. Paul is saying still in the future to where I'm writing and, and preaching 60, 64 AD when I'm ministering there's something happening in the future. That something has not been explained in depth in the Old Testament. It has been a mystery up to this point. That something is being revealed to us by the grace of God and it is the bringing together, verse 10 it's, an addition, it's a mathematical term, it's an additional term, summing up everything, bringing it all together and getting a sum total where he says that he may gather together in one heaven and earth becoming one underneath Jesus Christ. He says which are in heaven and, and he says everything being done by Christ. Look at the next verse. It's very pertinent to us believers. He says that, he says in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance in this future where heaven and earth are going to become one. And what we know from the Bible and studying it is that the earth will be our home for most of our heavenly, our heavenly existence. Now we understand absent from the body is present the Lord. Those who have passed away, when we pass away, if it happens before the rapture, we're going in spirit up into heaven. But then sometime in the near future, when Jesus Christ completes the, revel the tribulation, he's going to come back to this earth. He is going to uh, set up a heaven on earth for how many years? A thousand years. It's called the millennium or the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're going to live there with him. That's going to exceed our existence up to this point. It's going to be a thousand years. We're living on earth on this planet that has been rejuvenated, revitalized, that has been uh, renovated, rec reclaimed, or as we would say resurrected according to uh, Romans chapter 8, the earth itself will also be glorified or experience a resurrection if you would, where it's changed. After that, there's going to be the destruction of this planet earth and there's going to be the creation of a new earth with new heavens and we will live there for all eternity. So the bulk of our eternal life, the bulk of our heavenly state will be on planet earth whether it be this earth that's renovated or the new earth. The question is what is that going to be like? We're going to do something kind of a little bit different. I want you to, to hold your fingers in two passages. We're going to Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21. We're going to read a few verses from Isaiah 60 then compare those verses to Revelation 21 to get a, a description. So both passages, Isaiah 60, Revelation 21, and towards the end of 21 going into chapter 22. Let's start with Isaiah 60. This is to the Old Testament saints. It is telling them what this heaven on earth will be like, or should we say um, that kingdom-like. He says in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light is come, Isaiah 60 verse 1, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall rise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Go to Revelation. Revelation 21. 
Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, there's no more sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God uh, out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned. Down in verse 11, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like jasper. He goes on and he describes at length the New Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of the Lamb of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light there. Both those passages, Isaiah 60, Revelation 21, both talk about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Back to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, verse 4. There's a regathering of all the Jews in the, in the kingdom, a regathering to Israel. Lift up your eyes round about. See, all they gather themselves together. They come to you. Thy sons come from a, shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be nursed at thy side. So the Jews are regathered. The Gentiles who are living in this kingdom will be engaging them. Look at verse 5. Then you shall see and shall flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto you. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian, Ephah. He says, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall show forth the praises of the Lord. The flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto you. Israel is the hub. The Jerusalem is the hub. People are gathering, coming together. They shall come up with acceptance upon your altar. I will glorify your house for my glory. Who are these that fly in the clouds as the dove? Surely the isles shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish, first to bring your sons from afar, their silver, their gold with them. And he keeps on going all the way down. He says in verse 10, the sons of strangers shall build up your walls. Their king shall minister unto you. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor I will have that mercy upon you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut by day or night that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles and their kings may be brought. Go back to Revelation. Back to Revelation 21. Look at verse 24. He says, And the nations which that are saved shall walk in the light of it. The kings of the earth, I'm in Revelation 21, 24, the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. The gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Back to, Revela uh, to uh, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 18. He says, violence shall no more be heard in your land, wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your wall salvation and thy gates praise. Revelation 21, back to verse 26. It says, they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into this new Jerusalem. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles neither whatsoever, works abomination or makes a lie, and they only they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Go back to chapter... Uh, 60. And look in verse 19. He says in Isaiah, the sun shall no more be a light by day, neither for brightness but shall the moon give light. But the Lord shall be unto you the everlasting light. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall your moon withdraw, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light. Back to Revelation 21, verse 23. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord did lighten it. Go down to chapter 22, verse 5. There shall be no more night there, they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God give them light. They shall reign forever and ever. We go back to chapter 22 in Revelation. Look at verse 1. There's a river there. No pollution. It's just beautiful. There's no threats taking place. There's no more curse we read about in verse 3. He talks about how it is phenomenal and fabulous. There's no more wickedness. He's talking and describing this future kingdom that the Jews were looking for, and the kingdom, and then going into eternity that we will participate in as being a phenomenal place. Earth will be absolutely beyond our wildest imaginations. As beautiful as different parts of the earth are now, it'll be more phenomenal. The new earth will be even, even greater. He says in chapter 21, talking about that, that new condition. If you go back to Revelation 21, down to verse 1, he says there's no more sea. And as we pointed out, does that mean there's not going to be any water? No, there's rivers there. There's also
also been Isaiah talking about the idea of ship sailing. What's he mean by that? Probably no more threats, no more challenges, nothing that the, that the people of the Middle East would think that in that time period anything beyond the Mediterranean was dangerous. You fall off the edge of the earth and it's going to be a, a problem. He says there's not going to be any of that threat anymore. There'll be safety in sailing. There's going to be safety in all, the, in all that's happening. So this new heaven, this new earth that, that's going to come to planet earth and then eventually the new earth itself is going to be a phenomenal place. It's going to be a glamorous place. It's going to be better than anything we can picture or imagine. And it's not a once upon a time. This is exactly what is prophesied. Now we understand that and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our eternity in that new heaven and that new earth. What are we going to be like? That's the big question. What are we going to be like when we are in that time period? Will we, will we be like we are now? Where we're going to get glorified bodies. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's there in your notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 says, For we know that this earthly house of this tabernacle will be dissolved. We know that these bodies are going to fail. We have a new building of God, a house not made with hands. God is going to provide eternal bodies that are going to be able to live in this eternal realm. Bodies that will not suffer, will not have disease, will not have the germs, will not go in with, you know, you know like when when the, when the pioneers came, went across America, they introduced all kinds of diseases to the Indians. The diseases killed off many of the tribes. Are we going to go in with diseased bodies, bodies that are going to take contaminants in? Absolutely not. In fact, 1 Corinthians gives us a lengthy description of the new bodies. Turn with me there. We're not going to spend a long time here, but in 1 Corinthians he's giving us a description of the new bodies that we will get. He describes those new bodies at length in there, and he uses one phrase that is critical. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking about the new Adam and the old Adam, the old Adam and the new Adam. If we jump down and let's go down about verse 22. For as in Adam, in the Garden of Eden, all die, even so in the second Adam, Jesus Christ shall all be made alive. Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ. Then comes the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall put down all everything under his rule, authority, and power. Now let's jump down to verse 49. He's describing our bodies and he says, okay, this second coming of Jesus Christ will have impact. And he says in verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy or the earthly Adam, he goes on and he says, we have also, are also going to bear the image of the heavenly, the heavenly Adam. We're bo our bodies eventually are going to be changed. This is going to happen for us at the rapture. Where all of a sudden our bodies are renewed, they're glorified, and our bodies will become like Jesus Christ's bodies. We read in Philippians chapter 3 these words. We look in verse, Philippians 3 verse 20. We look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall become like him, for we shall see him as he is. What's that mean? When we get raptured, when our bodies get changed, when we die and go to the earth and we get resurrected, that could all be happening at the same different time, the same time for some of us, some of the others may have passed away, some of us may be alive when he comes back. But when those bodies are changed at the rapture, when they're glorified, we know that our bodies are going to become like Christ in that we will have real physical bodies. Jesus Christ, after he was resurrected, he comes into the upper room and he says to the disciples, I am not a ghost. He says, I am, he, I am flesh and, and a bone and flesh. He said, touch me. He, feel me. And he gives, gives the challenge. He says, I am real. It is a physical body. It is a human body that looks human. Jesus Christ was recognizable except for those few moments where he hid himself so she thought it was the gardener or the two men on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. But otherwise than that, he was totally recognizable with his re resurrection body. We have a description of Jesus that in his resurrection body he was somewhat you know, looking normal but at times he was brilliant. There was times where he shone when he had some of his glory. It's 
it's interesting that in Daniel he says this about us in our resurrection bodies. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall turn many to righteous, those who turn many to righteousness, as the stars forever and ever. Matthew 13 says this, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. So not only is there the brilliance of the kingdom itself where the king and the Lord are, but maybe some of that brilliance is like we will be like Moses coming off the mount, where we will reflect that glory of God, where we will shine, where we will have a brilliance about us that won't, that won't cause people to fear because we'll all be on that same plane. But at that time, he says, our bodies will be real bodies. Look at chapter 15, and I want you to catch a couple things down about verse 40. He's describing the bodies that we will get. He says in verse 40, there are also celestial bodies, there are terrestrial bodies. That is, bodies made for heaven, there are bodies that are made for this earth. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. He goes on, he says, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. What he is indicating is that our bodies that we are going to be given will be adaptable to the environment that we live in. Just like somebody goes under the water, they have to have equipment to adapt to live under the water, to breathe under the water. So we will have bodies that will adapt to the heavenly atmosphere, the new heaven, the new earth, whose atmosphere may be a lot different than ours, but our bodies will be adaptable. Not only will they be adaptable bodies, but they will also have variety. When we are given perfect bodies, sometimes some of us think perfect bodies means we will all look alike. No, there is one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon. There is still differences in creation. God is a God of variety. We will retain some of our appearance, which allows us to have variety. Even though we will be perfect, it doesn't mean that we will all look alike. Thank God we will have uniqueness. Thank the Lord that we will be able to be there. We may probably re retain a variety of sizes, shapes, we could retain a variety of color. We don't know. We know that some of those who are glorifying him in the future, they're going to be identified from different tribes and nations and tongues. So they have some type of difference between them. Will we retain that, that uh, difference of the idea of different skin tones, skin colors? There may be no reason why we wouldn't. It wasn't necessarily a part of the curse. We don't, we don't know when it was introduced. But the fact is, we might have different sizes and shapes. Now, I hope I'm in much better shape and a little bit different size, but we're going to be peoples, looking like peoples, walking into this kingdom. And he describes our bodies a little bit more. He says in verse 42, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead, the variety, the adaptability. Then he says, it is sown in corruption. Anybody have another word for there in your translation? What is it? Perishable? Yeah, that's the idea. It is sown in the idea that it, it is dying. The, the, the body sown into the ground, it is decaying, literally. But it will be raised imperishable. He says your body is sown or put into the grave in dishonor. It means it doesn't look real good. We understand that. We, we, we know that. Okay. He goes on, he says, it will be raised in beauty or in glory. It is going to be sown in weakness. It's going to be raised in power. Mark down, power doesn't mean omnipotence. When we resurrect, we aren't going to be omnipotent we aren't going to be God, but we will be powerful in the sense that our bodies will be changed. We won't be free of disease. We'll use our full minds. But it doesn't mean that we are infinite beings all of a sudden, that we have fi uh, finite powers, that we are, fi we are these beings that, I'm sorry, infinite uh, intelligence and beings that all of a sudden we're, we're gods themselves. That's not the case, but we're going to have greater power than what we have now. He goes on, he says, there is a natural or an earthly body. There is going to be this heavenly body, this spiritual body that is going to have all this uniqueness and this, this power and this majesty to the body. What I find really interesting, just looking at this overview for tonight, is this thought. That when it comes to the earth, as well as it comes to our bodies, there is continuity in creation. The same bodies will go into eternity. The same earth will go into heaven on earth, but it's change. There's continuity, but there's change. Change for the better. Change that will remove the curse. That same thing happens to our bodies as happens to the earth that God doesn't just dissolve and get rid of. By the way, he could have done this in the Garden of Eden, could he not? Could he not have said, Adam and Eve have blown it, I'm going to wipe them out and start all over. 
He could have done it. He didn't. He decided to redeem that which had been corrupted by sin. And so he keeps somewhat of a continuity going. And even in heaven, there's the continuity of places, buildings, um, walkways, waterways for our benefit. We can relate to it as well as we can adapt to that. Our bodies, even our new bodies, will need something for transportation. We'll need something for moving about. And so there's continuity but change. That thing is happening in all different areas, and I think it happens even in the area of our activities, even in the area of what we're going to do. So we've talked about so far what the earth will be like. It's going to be changed, glorified, and it's going to be the place where we live the most time. We talk about our bodies. They're going to be similar, but they're going to be changed. Our resurrection bodies will be glorious and glamorous. They will be great. But what are we going to do? What exactly will we do in this new heaven, this new earth? What, will, what activities can we be involved in? We've already talked about when we leave this earth right now and go to the heaven that is the heaven that we will live in until he comes and sets up his kingdom on earth. We've talked about some of the things we'll do. The, the visiting the relatives, maybe activity and helping with the new Jerusalem. But once it's built... Once it comes down to this earth in Revelation 21 and 22, then what do we do? What do we do for that thousand years? What do we do for the eons after that? What's happening? What's taking place? You know, what kind of activity? Well, according to what we've already read in Isaiah and Revelation 21, there's going to be such activity as mining, okay? Because it's bringing in their gold, their silver. We already read that. There's going to be shipping, that is the shipping industry, the sailing. They're coming from different ships from afar. There's going to be traveling. The sons of Israel are traveling from afar. The sons of the Gentiles are bringing into Jerusalem all of their inventions. There is going to be taking care of animals. How do I know that? He talked about the dromedaries. He talked about the camels being brought even towards Jerusalem. We know that in that time period, there's going to be animals you know, that are going to be involved. And Isaiah chapter 11 talks about that during that time period, the lion and the, uh, and the sheep and the, and the uh, uh, asp and the cockatrice and the children, they'll all be playing together. So there's going to be a variety of animals there that we're going to be interacting with, probably doing some husbandry, which is no surprise because even in the old earth when it was first created, were there animals uh, occupied and keeping Adam and Eve busy? The answer is yes that they were active and they had dominion over those animals. So we're probably going to have dominion over the new earth, which involves us doing some types of things of mining and, and as we said, sailing. And we said that also there's going to be the animals. There's going to be harvesting of lumber. How do I know that? They're bringing the different lumbers to be building up Jerusalem and the area of, of, that we read in Isaiah, uh, the area of Judea and Israel as we know it. So there's going to be, there's going to be building. We know as well there's going to be administration done. He's talked about us getting seats of, of authority in Matthew chapter 22 and he's going to, we're going to see it in Sunday school next week in Matthew chapter 24 where you're given different responsibilities. Responsibilities to do what? Administration. Somebody still has to be putting in some of the streets in the New Jerusalem, in the, in the rest of the world beyond New Jerusalem. What about building up the cities? What about taking care of the different needs that people may have in living together, in housing, in transportation? There's going to be travel being done, so there would be activity. We're not going to be necessarily infinite beings that all of a sudden we can beam up here and beam up there and instantly be here and instantly be there. There's an indication that there's travel on vessels that we read in Isaiah 60. So we're going to need to create vessels. We're going to create waterways or roadways that need to be able to, that can adapt to those vessels. We know as well that there's going to be farming done, that they're going to be bringing in the foods and the harvest. So there's a lot of activity beyond things not mentioned. Is there going to be artwork going to be done or is artwork sinful? Is there going to be music? Well, we know that already, that heaven's filled with music. And so could there be composing that's being done? Could there be as well the activity of reading and writing? Do you, do you think in heaven we may tell stories of God's greatness by recalling things that he's done in the past? Do you think in heaven that we might do drama and theater? Because wasn't Jesus a master at storytelling? 
So I think there's going to be a lot of those activities of that form of you and I might call entertainment, where we're busy, we're reading, we're writing, we're telling stories, there's playing of instruments, we understand that from Scripture, there's the songs. Could it be that even part of our heaven is learning other people's cultures from the past and understanding how people did things and being enamored by what has gone on and what had, had transpired in that regard. So it seems to me that there's not only a lot that's active in what's going on at that time, but also recalling the past. But in this new heaven, Isaiah 65 talks about a new heaven with a, with a I'm sorry, a new earth with new heavens, plural. And so the indication is there's going to be an expansion of space. Could we in that kingdom, could we in the eternal place, could we be expanding our knowledge and ability so we could do space travel? Not so we can find the source of evolution. But doesn't the heavens declare the glory of God? The answer is yes, now. Won't the heavens declare his glory even more for us to be able to expand, to, to grow, and to be able to see the majesty of God? There's going to be a lot of physical activity, mental activity, a lot going on that we don't have to worry about being bored. We don't have to sit back and say, wait a minute, when we get to heaven, you know, we're going to be strumming some harp all day long, and I don't want a harp, I want a guitar, and this is going to be a terrible time. It's not going to be that way at all. We are going to be busy. Even on the time that we're back on earth, it's going to be a busy time, a time where it's occupied, a time where inventions, in fact, in Revelation, he makes that comment, we already read, where the kings will bring their glory into the city. Many scholars think that that bringing the glory is the idea that they're going to bring their new technology, their new inventions, their new this, their new that, in to show the king, to praise his name for his abilities of helping them to expand. So we could be in a society that is very, very, very um, active and busy and growing and learning. And I think kids are going to play in this kingdom. Uh, by the way, you do know that in the first thousand years, children will be born in that kingdom. That opens up a whole new question, as you asked me a few minutes ago, is whose children? Well, those who I understand, those who survived the tribulation, those who, who did not die, the remnant that was spared that, I, that uh, Zechariah talks about, Zechariah 14, the one-third of the Jews, they will go into this kingdom, and as well as the Gentiles who survived the tribulation will go in, and they are going to live in that kingdom during that period of time. And we know there's a lot of people born in that kingdom. We know that a lot of people uh, are growing during that time. We know that at the end of that thousand years, there's a group of people who have yet... They have retained their sin nature. In other words, they grew up during that time period. They were born during that time period. They may, have, they may have obeyed Christ, but they haven't gotten saved. And they will rebel against Christ. That's not us, because we all have our sin nature eradicated. It's gone when we get our glorified bodies. Same thing for the Old Testament saints who have been resurrected. Daniel 12, they've gotten their new bodies. They're at the beginning of the kingdom. But those individuals who apparently their parents, their grandparents, survived the tribulation, go in with normal bodies, they're not resurrected, they're living on planet Earth, they're going to have children, 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 children. Some will need to get saved. You're going to do evangelistic work. You're going to be teaching children. You're going to be involved with training. And it talks about at the end that many of them will follow the king, but many of them as the sands of the seas, the stars in the sky, will rebel against the king. So during this thousand years, we've got teaching to do. We have outreach to do amongst those who are being birthed. We have gifts to give you know, at, uh, at children's, you know, being their, the baby showers. It's going to be an active time. It's going to be a really busy time. We're going to be doing a lot of stuff during that time, so there's no, there's no worry about running out of, of opportunity and activity. Here's a question that often comes up. Will animals be there? We already mentioned that there's the camels. We already mentioned that Isaiah 11 talks about the wolf, the lamb, the cow, the lion, the oxen. In Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Isaiah 11 even talks about bugs are going to be there. Okay, it talks about, you know, at the cockatrice and at the snake, the asp, they're going to be there. So we know there's going to be animals. We've even ridden, we've come down with Christ from heaven with horses. Now the question is, are we going to have our pets there? I would think, again, this is imagination, we don't know. I would think that we're going to get along with the animals, would we not? The curse is removed. Did Adam get along with the animals? Yes, he did. 
And so there's no reason to think that we wouldn't get along with animals. There's no reason that the children playing at the hole of the animals of the snake are going to be threatened. So there's going to be activity, interaction with the animals. Would we, could we have pets during that time? Why not? That's a good possibility. And do pets and people get along for the most part? They do, as long as you don't pet them and don't get close to them and don't hold them on your lap. But it's going to be, there's, you know, now the question that some of you may have was, what about my pet? My pet that I had, will I see that pet in heaven? I don't know. I, I think not. I don't think so. And the reason I think not is that in order to be into that state, they have to add a soul. And so something that lists that lasts for eternity. And it doesn't seem to be any indication that God breathed his soul into the animals. He breathed it into man, which makes us unique. However, there is something about animals that's in scriptures that is very interesting. I want you to see a couple passages. You'll think I'm nuts, but this is what the passage says. In Revelation chapter 4, turn there. Revelation chapter 4. This might, be a, this might throw you for a little bit of a loop. In Revelation chapter 4, we talked with somebody who was saying this morning how sometimes when we're preaching, you're stretched from where you normally are thinking. Well, let me stretch you really a lot on this one. Okay, look at chapter 4, verse 7. This is the description of what's going on in heaven. The first, it, it says, and the first blank was like unto a lion, the second was like unto a calf, the third was like, what does your Bible say? What's it called, these things? Beast, okay? And it says in verse 8, The four beasts each had six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rested not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, is, and is to come. And when those four beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat upon the, the throne that lives forever, the four and twenty elders, they fall down and worship him. Now, the majority of our commentaries are going to say that these four beasts are four angels. The only problem with that is there's a word that's used to describe them. The B-E-A-S-T in the original is Z-O-O-N, Zoon, in the Greek language. Nowhere in the New Testament is Z-O-O-N describing of angels. Every time it's used in the New Testament, in, like in, in Hebrews and in Peter, it's used to describe animals that are made for sacrifice. And so it's a term that is frequently used in biblical and extra-biblical literature to refer to animals. Okay, if that is true, okay, if these are animals and not some type of angelic being, the first animal was like to a lion, that makes sense, the other one was like to a calf, the third had a face of a man, the fourth was a flying eagle. That means there would be different type of creatures in heaven than what we're used to on earth. That would be no surprise, that's a possibility. The four beasts each had with them six wings about, they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night. The, a surprising thing would be that these animals did what? They talked. Is that a possibility? That animals might have the ability to communicate with us even more than what we understand at this point. In fact, let me throw this one to you. Go to chapter 5, verse 13. It says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea, and such as are in the sea, and all those that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne, the Lamb forever. Is there a possibility that in heaven animals communicate with voices of some sort? Let me take it a little bit further. I want you to go to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Okay, now, this isn't so hard for me to believe because we had a dog named Pebbles. And Pebbles was a mutt, a you know, Heinz 57 breed was uh, all kinds of things, but Pebbles was the most intelligent dog that ever was upon planet Earth. It was our dog when I was a young youngster and teenager, and Pebbles talked to me, okay? Pebbles and I could communicate. Do you ever have one of those pets yeah, that were just, you're really close to? Isaiah 148, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 148. Psalm 148, look at down verse 10. He said, beasts and cattle, all the cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges upon the earth, both young men, maidens, old men and children, let them do what? Praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent, his glory is above all things. He also exalts the horn. So is there the possibility that God gives these creatures the ability to communicate? By the way, I'm not so sure it's so far out because didn't the snake speak? And the question that I have is if the snake, if it was so uncommon for animals to be able to communicate, shouldn't that in and of itself cause Adam to go, whoa, something's bad here. But he never does that. 
He listens, he reacts. Now, I understand the delusion of Satan could be there, but, I'm not, but I don't know. I don't know. Is it the possibility in Scripture that animals will have a greater ability to communicate than what they do on planet Earth right now? It seems that way. It seems that way when it comes to your animals. So you say, well, you know, I may have a pet that's going to really you know, help me out and talk with me. What language will we speak if we all talk in heaven? Well, in Revelation, the passage that we're just looking at, in Revelation chapter, chapter 5, I said something wrong, did I not? No, somebody else did. Okay. Beyond that, uh, it says in, in Revelation 5, I was just reading on the internet this afternoon that others will say the answer is Hebrew. And there's a whole article written by the Assembly of Yahweh up there in, in Bethel. And they give all these reasons why it was Hebrew and it's because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Therefore, that's the language that God knew. And it's like, <laughs> really? That's your argument? You know, especially when you go to the book of Daniel, you know that some of the book of Daniel wasn't even written in Hebrew. Okay? And it's kind of like, okay, um, you know, maybe God spoke to Moses in Hebrew at the time because that's the language he knew. Okay? Um, so, but in Revelation chapter 5, we have this comment. He says in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, it sounds like all the different peoples, all the different the creatures, they have a unified voice where they are calling out and they are crying unto the Lord. The same thing, it says in verse 9, that they're singing a new song, and the song seems to be in one, one accord, one harmony. I know Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9 says this. It says that God will give a pure language so that all can pray him together. And so it seems like there's going to be some type of universal language, but could we also retain our own tongues? I don't know. But, that, but it seems like there's an indication that we're headed that direction. Will we marry when we get there? Well, we've talked about marriage when it comes to going straight to heaven. What about in the kingdom era? Will we marry? Again, I'm going to remind you, Matthew 22 says that we are not given in marriage, nor are we like the angels. Here's what goes through my mind. Why did God Give, start marriage in the first place. It is not good that man should. Is he going to be alone in heaven? No. Um, is, it, is marriage also to help? He provides, what does he call the woman in Genesis? I will bring and make him a help meet. Somebody to compliment his weaknesses, to, to point out his mistakes. No, that's not what it means. It means to, to help, to strengthen. Okay. Do we need that strengthening anymore? Mm, we're going to be with Christ more. Do we need to procreate to populate plant the planet? No, no. What about that intimacy that we have with our spouse that they are, can be our best friend and they're our real confidant? I think, I want to think this, that Deb and I are going to be best of friends throughout eternity and that would be fine with me. That'd be a great thing. But Jesus Christ is going to be more to me then than I understand at this point. He is going to mean more. And in fact, he, he and I will be more intimate than what we are now. That when we get to heaven, we are called his bride. That we are going to be closer to him. And he has such a, such a relationship with you in heaven that according to Revelation 2 verse 17, he's going to give you a pet name. He's going to give you a special name that nobody else will know. There's something between you and him that is going to be very, very secretive, uh, not secretive, very special, very just for you and him. So we don't need marriage like we do now because it's going to be more of that community with Christ. There's going to be that greater aspect, but I don't think that means that we are going to not know family. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, will I know family? Will I, that's the point of Thessalonians. The book, the epistle is written to people who are saying, I've lost loved ones. Will they, you know, what's going to happen to them when the rapture occurs? And he says, you're going to be raptured, you're going to be taken up, and you're going to be caught up together with them to be with Christ. And so the idea is there's going to be somebody, we're going to be with others, with them. I think we're with the family and the friends that we're concerned about who have gone on before us. I don't think we, we eradicate from their memory their ideas. In 2 uh, uh, Samuel, David writes, when his son dies, he shall not come unto me, but I shall 
go to him when he's talking about his infant son that died. So it seems to be indication of scripture. We get there and there's going to be a reunion with those families, not just in this heaven, but here even on this earth, that there's going to be some type of memory and interaction where we're going to have that, but our primary concern is going to be Jesus Christ. And I don't find that hard. Now, I've said this several different times in different series, and to me the illustration makes perfect sense. When my girls were little, when the two of them were, were, were young, they wanted to marry me. Okay, they, they, you know, they were never going to leave my house. And then these two jerks of guys show up. <laughs> I mean, these two wonderful son-in-laws. Okay, they show up and my girls now, I'm minced meat compared to their husbands. And that's normal and that's the way it should be, right? Okay, but when they were little, they didn't understand when they were little when we'd say, no, you're not going to live with mommy and daddy forever. <laughs> praise God. You're going to grow up and you're going to get married and have your own family. And they'd say, no, I don't want to. Why? They didn't know. They didn't know. I think the same thing happens to us that we say, I want to be with her. I want my kids to be with me. I want them to be hovering around and about. But when we see Christ for who he is and we get to know him, probably these, these relationships, they will wane naturally because we're enamored with Jesus Christ more than we can imagine. And all we as little children right now, all we can do is say, well, I don't want this to go away, but it's going, it's going to become something so phenomenal in the future that these relationships aren't going to be evil in our mind. There's going to be a retaining of them to a degree, but our focus will be Jesus Christ. Here's a question that some people will ask. Will we eat and drink? For some of us in this room, what would heaven be like if we couldn't eat and drink? Okay, will we do that in heaven? It is obvious. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper. He made this comment, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now some in Revel go to Revelation chapter 7 and they point out that it says that, that when he's dealing with the 144,000 and those that, he, those that he wins, he says that they will never hunger or thirst. That proves that there's no food in heaven. Well, we got a contradiction in passages. Or we need to understand one of them a little bit better. I understand Revelation 7 verse 6 saying that when it says we'll never hunger or thirst is there's no famine. There's no starvation. There's no African wells that are running dry. Instead, there will be plenty. And we will eat. We will drink with Christ. He says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven to feast. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, There is a fruit tree that bears a different fruit every month of the year. We read in Revelation 7, verse 17, The lamb is in the the midst of the throne, he shall feed them and lead them to the waters, the, the fountains of the waters. So it seems to me to be the indication, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, and we'll enjoy it, and with perfect bodies we won't get fat. Amen. Okay, we won't have to diet. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be doing the eating and drinking. Will we have personal items or when we get to heaven, will it be communal living that is pure socialism or, or communism at its peak where all of a sudden there's not going to be personal anything? No, it doesn't say that. In fact, he says, I'm building what for us? The mansions for us. In Matthew 6, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt. I remind you, he said, lay up treasures for yourself. Okay. Now, when Christ gives out the crowns, doesn't he give them to individuals? Now, we're going to give them back to Jesus. I understand that. But don't we individually, some of us will get more crowns than others would get? There's that indication. In Revelation, he talks about in verse 21, verse 7, he says, He that overcomes will inherit all these things that I have for him. And he talks about us getting a name individually that only God knows. In Matthew 25, he talks about in the parable that some of us will have responsibility over ten cities, five cities, or no cities. So there seems to be some type of differences between us in the sense that we will have be given some type of personal responsibility, personal jobs, personal activity, personal possessions, but we won't have the problem with it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And don't you touch. We won't have to worry about the thievery or those types of things. Which leads me to this question, which is really, really important in our society. Will we all be equal? Let me give you a sense of what I'm talking about. But in this society today, is equality really, really promoted in our country today? 
that everybody is equal. Um, I was asked to do a wedding for one of the weddings coming up. And the, one of the couples wanted, that wants the wedding, they thought, and it made perfect sense to me, there's a little building closer to their home, and this building closer to their home is a little chapel, and the, the gal said, I always dreamed right down the street from home, getting married in that chapel, do you mind doing the wedding in there? I don't have a problem with that, I could care less. So they made application to check out this little chapel close to their home. They told me, they called me back and said, listen, before we can confirm the wedding there, the pastor of that church wants to interview you. And it's like, okay, I have no problem. So it took me a while to get a hold of the pastor because he only works one afternoon a week. And the secretary only works three mornings the week. And it took a while to get a hold of him. I finally got a hold of him and he said, hey, no problem. He says, I just want to just run through a few things because in our religious affiliation, we want to make sure that we only use our building to people who believe like us. Great, no problem. He says, I know about you already because I've checked you out on the web. So he says, I know you're a little bit different, but those little bit differences shouldn't be a problem. He says, do you believe in the centrality of Jesus Christ? And I would say, absolutely. Jesus Christ is the central figure of our lives and of our church. He said, I figured that from your doctrinal statement. He said, now, there's some other questions, but I don't think they're an issue. He said, um, but he said, I do want to just make sure that you think the way that we think, that we believe that the Bible teaches that all men are created equal, and as a result, men and ladies are totally equal in marriage. And so I was quiet, and he says, you do agree with that, don't you? And I said, well, define equal. He said, well, you know, he says that, that in marriage, they're totally equal. That, the, you know, and he, he pauses, you aren't one of those who believes that the woman should be barefoot and pregnant and the husband can rule over her and beat her. And I said, no, no, absolutely not. We don't believe that. We believe that everybody is equal in value and worth, that Christ died for all. But I said, I believe that to a degree that we're supposed to submit one to another, and that means that we're supposed to fulfill our roles, Ephesians 5.22. And he said, yeah, but, and he didn't let me finish. He says, yeah, but that means you don't believe in that, that archaic idea that the husband is the head over the woman. He's, you believe, he says, that was just for that generation. And I said, well, that's for my generation too. I said, I don't believe you know, that we are totally equal. I said, let me see if I can put it in terms. When my wife and I, we have an equal relationship in the sense that I, she's the queen of the house, but I'm the king, okay? In that house, you know, I'm supposed to laud her and, and lift her up and be concerned and vice versa. He says, okay, then we're on the same page. However, I said, I believe that if we're going to give percentages here, it's like 51-49. He goes, oh, um, will you say that in the wedding service? I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll ask if she will obey and submit. You know, at least once. It's going to be there. He said, oh, so you don't believe in equality. I said, I do. I believe that we are all equal in value and worth, but the last time that people fouled this up and said everybody's on equal terms or the lady's in charge, the last time that happened, look where it got us in the Garden of Eden. Okay, it's just, it's an unbiblical concept. And he said, so you're one of those. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm one of those. Yeah. He said, well, we're all, we all believe the same thing. We're all the same church. And I said, no, we're not. <laughs> he says, well, no, no. He says, I believe that our church is actually, you're, you're underneath our church and that, that you know, we want to work with you and we want to do. And I said, yeah, this is kind of cool. I said, you're tolerant of everything as long as it agrees with you. Yeah, so I said, listen, you don't have to feel bad. Just tell us we can't use the building. Yeah, he said, well, no, no. Why don't you just pretend you don't believe those things for the ceremony? <laughs> and so our conclusion of our conversation was, sir, listen, what you're asking is me to be deceitful. I don't want to be deceitful. This is what I believe. It's different than what you believe. Just tell us we can't use the building. We'll be fine. Because we're not changing our beliefs over a building. Okay. And so, you know, they did conclude their synod or whatever they call it met and there's no way they're letting us use the building, which is fine. I mean, it'll work and the couple's fine with that too. So that thought of all are equal is very per, you know, pervasive in our society. Are we all equal even in eternity? Hmm. 
If we're all equal, then we get all the same responsibilities and rewards. That's not true. That's just not true. They, uh, are we all equal in the sense that there's going to be everybody doing the same thing? No. We who are born again are going to rule and reign with him over others who are birthed during that time. So there's an equality in value. There's equality in worth. But there's going to be a gradation. There's going to be a government set up. There's going to be levels. And in that regard, we're going to have activity and we're going to have all kinds of things happening. But there's so many more things we could talk about. But I want you to conclude with me in, in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Jump down there, and after he's talked about this being in heaven, this being this glorious time, I want you to see how he wraps it all up. And he's talking about our bodies and our being in heaven. And he writes and he says, in an encouraging words, after talking about the corruption, putting on the incorruption, where he says in verse 53, the mortal putting on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, when this mortal shall have put on immortality, then it shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which gives us the victory. And by the way, when you and I are standing by those caskets, when we're with friends, we say these words, thanks be to God that gives us the victory through Christ. That this is not the end of this person. That this isn't, the, this isn't where this person goes to the grave and then they're forgotten, they're done. Jesus remembers them. Jesus watch cares over their body. Jesus will resurrect that body one day. They will be brought back to life so their body and their soul are reunited. And he concludes with these words, Therefore, Therefore, because we have a future with Christ, because there's going to be a, a time of reckoning with Christ, a time of, of accountability with Christ, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast. What? Unmovable. What? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. It feels that way sometimes, but it's not. Why? Because we've got a future in heaven. We are going to be with Christ. He's going to reward us. And this life, I, we're all like, we're, we're, a lot of us are thinking, oh, the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl. We look forward to it. There's nothing evil with that. There's nothing sinful about that. But the thing that we have to look forward that is far better than a Super Bowl and our team getting a trophy is us standing before Jesus Christ and getting crowns. And him saying, well done thou, good and faithful servant. That's what we should be looking forward to. That's what should be motivating us to witness this week, to share the gospel, to serve Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is coming again. He's going to change us, and we're going to live with him forever and ever and ever. Amen, and to God be the glory. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for some of this indication in scriptures that helps us, help us in the days ahead to honor you, to be faithful to you. Give us a good time of fellowship and give us sweet driving home even and give us a good week if you tarry. We thank you for your grace, your kindness. Amen. Thanks for being here. Have a good night.